Hey guys, before we begin, I have an exciting announcement to share with you. Well, it's actually a pre-announcement. For some time, listeners have been asking me for more true crime content, so I've decided to make that happen. I've been hard at work creating something I think true crime fans will love. This week, I'll be releasing a special announcement sharing all the details of this exciting new project. If you're subscribed to this podcast, you'll automatically receive the announcement as soon as it's out. If you're not, subscribe now so you don't miss it. I can't wait to share it with you. And now, let's start the show. This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series, Three Strikes and You're Dead. In this month's series, I will detail cases of murderers who were caught, sent to prison, and then inexplicably set free to kill again. This time, I'll tell you about a woman whose criminal history played out over almost six decades. In total, she was tied to scores of thefts and scams, four deaths by suicide, and at least three murders. She walked after her first charge of homicide when she claimed she'd only killed her lover in self-defense. A few years later, she was tried and convicted for the murder of her employer and sentenced to life in prison. She nevertheless was released after 17 years and continued on her criminal path, ultimately committing an even more brutal murder. Louise Pete was a black widow, a con artist, and a murderess. But she was so much more. Her story takes so many bizarre twists and turns, the likes of which I haven't seen since I covered the Marie Hilly case way back in episode number 56. And like that story, this one can't be told in just one episode. This is the first of a two-part episode in the series, Three Strikes and You're Dead, The Case of Louise Pete. The details of Lofi Louise Pressler's early life are somewhat sketchy. This is most likely by her own doing, as she often claimed to be from one place or another, and often exaggerated her family's wealth and importance. What is most likely true is that Lofi Louise Pressler was born in Louisiana on September 20, 1880. While at times during her life, she would claim her ancestors were wealthy landowners from Europe, her father, T.J. Pressler, was a printer from Mason, Texas, and her mother, a housewife raising three daughters. Louise, as she preferred to be called, was their middle child. Louise's mother may have died when she was just a girl. Louise became unruly, and perhaps because of this reason, or perhaps because her mother was gone, she was sent to boarding school. Stories from her classmates paint a picture of Louise as a girl who craved male attention and who was promiscuous from an early age. By the time she was 15, she was said to be sleeping around with local boys and older men alike and also stealing from her classmates. She was obsessed with acquiring material possessions, nice dresses, pretty hats, and most of all, jewelry. Diamonds were her favorite. Jewelry and items belonging to other girls were found hidden among her things at the boarding school. She was expelled. She returned to Bienville, Louisiana, at the age of 16, and married a young man named Russell Anthony, who was nine years her senior. The couple moved to Dallas, but their marriage was over before long. Not only did Anthony discover that his teenage bride was having an affair, but she was also caught committing thefts once again. He divorced her and sent her packing back to Louisiana. 
Louise soon met another man named Henry Bosley. Henry was a drummer, and he saw the shapely young girl enter a local drugstore. He quickly fell for Louise. Now, I have to make a brief aside here. In many of the accounts of Louise Pete's life, she is described as a dark-haired beauty. In all the photos I've found to Miss Louise, I'm sorry, I just don't see it. She has dark hair, this is true, but she seems somewhat short and squat with a broad chest and thick legs. Her face is round, her cheeks are slack, and she has a very weak chin. I normally would not comment on the attractiveness or lack thereof of someone I'm covering, but because I came across this description of her so frequently, I decided to see for myself. And my ruling is nope. But Henry, like many before and after him, was attracted to Louise Pressler. He wooed her, and they were married only a few days after meeting. One account said that poor Henry had been on the road for a long time and was very lonely. He also seemed to be a romantic. He reportedly told his new bride, Don't ever love another man, honey. I'd go crazy, maybe even kill myself, if I ever found out you didn't love me. The couple moved around while Henry tried to find regular employment as a salesman now that he was a married man. Louise still wanted to pursue the finer things in life, and when her husband couldn't afford to provide everything she wanted, she set out to get them for herself. While they were living in a boarding house in Tulsa, Oklahoma, jewelry belonging to other residents came up missing and was found in Louise's dresser drawer. She was arrested, and Henry Bosley bailed his wife out and apologized for her actions. She tearfully apologized as well. The judge let her go with a warning. They were kicked out of their boarding house and bounced around once again from town to town. The Bosleys were living in a series of rundown hotels, sometimes with Henry depositing his wife there while he went on the road to eke out a living. After about two years of marriage, Henry returned to the hotel two days early after one such trip. There he found his wife in bed with another man. Two days later, Henry was found dead in a Waco, Texas hotel room, a pistol in his hand. His death was ruled a suicide. This would begin a series of tragedies that befell most of the men in Louise's life. Louise Pressler Bosley, recently widowed and only 20 years old, next made her way to Boston, Massachusetts. She was now calling herself Anna Lee Gould. She began telling people that she was an heiress whose family owned estates in Europe. How she managed to pull that off when I imagine she either had a Louisiana or a Texas accent, I'll never know. Some accounts say that Louise set herself up as a call girl who visited wealthy businessmen in their hotel rooms to earn a living. While this is certainly a possibility, it seems more likely that she picked out men of means who she believed she could flatter and seduce. She would either con them into giving her money and gifts, or steal from them, or a combination of the two. After about a year in Boston, Louise had worked her way into the life of a wealthy older bachelor who paid for her room and board and plied her with gifts. But greedily, Louise began pilfering items from the man's estate. A relative of the man noticed valuables missing from his home during one visit and then took notice of his young mistress, well decked out in jewelry, fine clothing, and expensive hats. After a little investigating, she discovered and then revealed to the gentleman that he was being robbed. After being confronted and threatened with the law, Louise hightailed it out of Boston and back to Texas. In Waco, Louise soon turned her charm on a wealthy, if somewhat gaudy, oil tycoon. 
Joe Apple was known for wearing more diamonds than Louise had ever seen on a man. They studded his big belt buckles, flashed brightly on the several rings he always wore, and he even had some sewn on as shirt buttons. Louise may have truly fallen for a man for the first time. Or maybe not. One story said that she began a torrid affair with Apple, and when he rejected her suggestion that they marry, she became furious. Another version was that he'd caught her stashing away his diamonds and an altercation ensued. However it happened, within a week of meeting Louise, Joe Apple was found dead, shot in the head. Diamonds were missing, and Louise was suspected of Apple's demise. She was made to appear before a grand jury. She testified that, yes, she had shot Apple, but had only acted in self-defense. The man had tried to rape her, she claimed. She cried and pleaded on the stand, protesting her innocence. The grand jury bought it, and the matter was dropped. The dead man's missing diamonds apparently weren't considered, and Louise wasn't even indicted for theft. So convinced was the jury of Louise's innocence that they applauded her on her way out of the door. Louise's next stop was Dallas. There she met Harry Farote, and while he wasn't wealthy, didn't have a prominent social standing, or even a great job, Louise still saw something promising in him. Probably that he had the combination to the hotel safe where he clerked. Louise soon had him wrapped around her finger, and they married. Before long, it was discovered that the safe had been cleaned out. Over $20,000 in cash and jewels left for safekeeping by hotel guests was gone. The hotel clerk and his wife were suspected, especially when Louise's previous run-ins with the law were discovered. However, if Louise had taken the jewels, they were long gone, possibly pawned, sold, or hidden away. Without the evidence, the sheriff had no cause to arrest her. Harry, his reputation ruined, shot and killed himself soon afterwards. Louise was questioned by the coroner's jury, but they couldn't legally pin the blame on her for her husband's suicide. However, the sheriff told her, in no uncertain terms, to leave the town and never come back. She moved to Denver, Colorado, where she met a successful salesman named Richard Pete. They married in 1914. Their relationship was a rocky one, although her marriage to Pete would last several years. They separated just one year after they wed, but reconciled not long after. Their problems remained. Both she and Pete carried on extramarital affairs, but they continued to try and make it work, especially after their daughter, Betty, was born in 1916. But they both eventually conceded that they could not remain together as husband and wife and be happy. Pete decided to travel to China for a business opportunity. They agreed that they would remain legally wed, but they were both free to pursue other relationships. A very early open marriage, I would say. Pete left the States in 1918 and planned to be overseas for two years, but became ill and had to cut the trip short and return home. The influenza epidemic was at its peak in 1918, and over one-fifth of the world's population was struck down by the illness. Fifty million lost their lives to the virus. When Pete returned, Louise stayed by his side and nursed him back to health. Then it was Louise's turn to become ill with influenza, and Pete now returned the favor, taking care of his sick wife and caring for his daughter, Betty. But when both had fully recovered, they went back to their old pattern of fighting and carrying on affairs. While they had both agreed to the arrangement, now that they were living together again, neither was happy with the state of their marriage. Things only grew worse when the economy took a hit in 1920, 
and the Peets went bankrupt. Louise decided she would have better prospects somewhere other than Denver, so she packed up her daughter Betty and moved to Los Angeles. While looking for a home to rent, Louise found a listing placed by a wealthy mining engineer named Jacob Charles Denton. Denton was looking for a housekeeper to run his 14-room mansion. There was a separate apartment on the property designated for the home's caretaker. Louise had hit pay dirt. Denton had recently lost both his wife and infant child to the influenza epidemic. Louise quickly set out to make herself indispensable to the widower. She could tell he was lonely and grieving, and that made him ripe for the picking for a con artist like Louise. She told him that she didn't need the job, just a place to live, and his home met her high standards. But, she told him, she could see that it needed a woman's touch. Denton offered her the position that paid $50 per week, plus room and board. She agreed and moved in right away with four-year-old Betty. While tidying up for Mr. Denton, Louise conveniently found his bank records. She discovered he was a very wealthy man, and before long, she'd wormed her way into his life, and most likely, his bed. Betty was soon sent back to her father in Colorado, while Louise began to be seen on Denton's arm at social functions. She was living in his house by this time, driving his car, paying his bills, and doing his banking. While Louise, unknown to Denton, was still married to Richard Pete, she still tried to convince him that they should marry. Denton didn't bite, and it's believed that Louise decided on her plan B. First, she asked the gardener to dump dirt into Denton's cellar. She was planning to grow mushrooms, she explained. She had already begun pilfering Denton's valuables, including a three-carat diamond stick pin and a diamond ring. In the spring of 1920, for some reason, Denton decided to have a careful inventory taken of all his possessions. He may have started to have some suspicions about his girlfriend-slash-housekeeper because he didn't ask Louise to conduct the inventory, but rather a niece named Mrs. Ament. In May, Mrs. Ament came to the house to take inventory. A few days later, Denton and Louise attended a party at his niece's house. It's believed that at that time, she provided her uncle with his final inventory. Denton may have noticed that valuables were missing from the list. In any case, after that day, Mrs. Ament never heard from her uncle again. In fact, after May 30, 1920, no one ever saw Jacob Charles Denton again. An automobile dealer phoned Denton in early June. Denton had expressed an interest in purchasing one of his vehicles. Louise answered the phone and said that Denton was unable to take his call. She told him that he'd had an injury to his arm and had to have it amputated. The auto dealer was shocked. He'd just seen Denton a few days earlier, and his arm had been fine. Louise told him to go ahead and drop the car off at the house. She said it would be a nice surprise for Denton once he returned. Louise then began to tell ever more outrageous stories about the whereabouts of Denton over the next few weeks. At the same time, she was working to gain control of all his assets and had taken over his house. She gave lavish parties, writing checks for everything from Denton's accounts. She was driving his car, purchasing clothes on his credit accounts, and living the high life. Meanwhile, Denton had not been seen in weeks. When people began calling and insisting they speak with Denton, Louise concocted a bizarre story. She said he had gotten into a violent confrontation with a, quote, Spanish woman 
who had either wounded or completely chopped off his arm with the sword, depending on what version of the story she was telling that day. He had survived the attack, but was so distraught and embarrassed by his missing limb that he had gone into hiding. She further embellished the story for others, saying that not only had his arm been chopped off, but also his leg. She told several stories about where he'd gone into hiding, first saying he was in San Francisco, and then Portland. She said he was so ashamed of his disfigurement that he didn't want to see or talk to anyone, but she was sure he would return once he learned to use his new artificial limbs. People didn't know what to think, and several stopped asking. Denton had a daughter from a previous marriage who was away at school in Arizona. She had always received a monthly support check from her father, but in the spring of 1920, the checks had stopped coming. She wrote to her cousin, Mrs. Ament, when she got no response to the letters she wrote her father. Mrs. Ament then contacted Louise and suggested they go to Denton's bank to try and find out how to contact him. She wanted to see if any checks had recently cleared and if it might give them a clue as to his whereabouts. Louise told her it wasn't a good idea, as he would be angry at them for interfering in his affairs. It was later discovered that less than a week after Denton's disappearance, Louise Pete had tried to access his bank safety deposit box. She was blocked from entering by the bank's vice president. She then tried to cash a check she said was written out to her by Denton, but the signature didn't match the one the bank had on file, and they refused to cash it. It was then that Louise started relaying the tale of the Spanish woman. But in this version, she said that she'd seen the woman arrive at Denton's home and had heard them arguing from another room. Later, she'd heard a gunshot. In the morning, Mr. Denton's arm had been in a sling. She assumed that the wound on his arm had occurred when he'd been shot by the Spanish woman. Later, his wound had become infected, and Denton had gone away to get treatment, but the infection was too severe and his limb had to be amputated. People began comparing stories. The Spanish woman had either attacked Denton with a sword or shot him. In either case, the story was just unbelievable, and now more questions were being asked regarding his whereabouts. Then, two months after Denton was last seen, Louise packed her bags and left Los Angeles. She told neighbors she was returning to Denver to reconcile with her husband, Richard Pete. Denton's attorney, Rush Blodgett, was contacted by Denton's first wife, who asked for assistance in tracking him down. When the attorney discovered that no one had heard from Denton since late May, and that Louise Pete had told conflicting stories of his whereabouts, he began to suspect that Denton may have met with foul play. Blodgett then hired private detective A.J. Cody. In September, he and Cody decided to conduct a search of Denton's home. By this time, the man had been missing for almost four months. Upon entering the cellar, they discovered a mound of dirt and began to dig. Before much time had passed, they uncovered a decomposed body that was determined by dental records to belong to Jacob Charles Denton. A bullet was found lodged in his spine. He had been shot in the back. Suspicion immediately fell on Louise Pete as a murderer. The only problem was she was now in Colorado and would have to be extradited back to California to face charges. Investigators contacted Louise and told her that a body had been found in the basement of Denton's house. They acted as if they didn't suspect her and said they needed her help to find the person responsible. She agreed to travel back to California with them voluntarily. 
Richard Pete went along to support his wife. They took her to the house and down to the cellar, where Denton's body had lain rotting for four months. They thought this might prompt a confession from her, but instead, Louise continued to repeat her story of the Spanish woman and the amputated arm. They told her they didn't believe a word of her story, and they were sure that she had murdered Denton. She was asked to explain how she came to be in possession of Denton's valuables, such as his silver and furs that had belonged to his deceased wife. They showed her bills connected to Denton's accounts from around town, where she had made purchases for herself, dresses, hats, and jewelry. For every question, Louise had a long-winded answer that made no sense and made her look increasingly guilty. Her attorney and her husband both told her to stop talking, but Louise Pete seemed sure that she could talk her way out of this predicament the same way she had when charged with theft in her youth and even after killing her lover in 1912. Louise was arrested and charged with the murder of Jacob Charles Denton on October 28, 1920. The case against her was strong. In addition to the body found in the house, where only the two of them had lived, the gun used to kill Denton was found among Louise's possessions. Investigators also pointed out at the trial that while Louise was still claiming to be in contact with Denton in late June and July, the coroner had determined that he'd been deceased since early June. Louise, always ready with an answer, explained that the man she'd seen later that summer must have been an imposter posing as Denton. The trial began in January of 1921. Citizens flocked to the courthouse to see the Black Widow they were reading about in the newspapers. Like any high-profile case, some wanted to become part of the proceedings and even made claims to back up Louise Pete's absurd stories. One witness claimed to have seen a Spanish woman at the Denton house in early May. Another said he'd seen Denton after June 1st, with one arm missing. A friend of Louise's from Denver, Ida Gregory, said she'd been with Louise on the day of the crime. Louise, she testified, had been in a great mood, dancing and singing around the house, not at all like a person who'd just committed a grisly murder. On February 17th, the all-male jury returned with a verdict of guilty. At the sentencing phase, the first ballot ended in an 8-4 to four vote for execution by hanging. Because the vote was not unanimous, Louise Pete's sentence was automatically set as life in prison. Louise Pete continued to maintain her complete innocence. She told reporters, quote, I am being crucified upon a cross, but I can say, as did Christ, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, unquote. She was sent to San Quentin Prison to serve her sentence. Louise's husband, Richard Pete, had already begun divorce proceedings after she left him to move to Los Angeles. But now he'd become her biggest supporter, remaining by her side throughout her trial. After she was sent to San Quentin, he remained in contact with her through frequent letters. But the letters stopped coming after a time. In 1924, Richard Pete became another victim of the Black Widow when he was found dead by his own hand in a Tucson hotel room. Some believed his reputation was ruined at having been married to and remaining supportive of a murderess. Louise, it seemed, believed he missed her so terribly that he couldn't face life any longer. She even bragged to cellmates about how many men had decided to end their lives rather than live without her. 
Even though Louise was serving a life sentence, she was eligible to apply for parole. As soon as she was allowed, Louise began to apply every year. But for several years in a row, the board denied her request. Not because of the nature of her crime, or even because she still had not taken responsibility for Denton's murder, but because the board didn't believe she could be gainfully employed after her release. Not only had Louise not confessed to Denton's murder, she'd also said she wasn't convinced it was his body that was found buried in the cellar. She claimed that he was still alive somewhere. She also claimed she knew who the real murderer was, but couldn't reveal his name because he had threatened to kidnap and kill her daughter Betty. So she knew who murdered Denton but couldn't say, but she also didn't believe he was dead? Okay. Anyway, she was denied parole, but was transferred to the new women's prison at Tehachapi, where her conditions were much improved. There she was allowed outside in the warm weather and was assigned to tend the prison's rose garden. In 1939, her case came up for review again. The parole board seemed inclined to grant Mrs. Pete her freedom. When reporter Caroline Walker, who'd covered Louise Pete's trial, heard about this, she made sure to send them a message. That woman is too dangerous to be set loose on society again, she warned them. She's managed to exist all her life by stealing, lying, and by violence. Mark my words, if you turn her loose, it's going to be tragic for someone. One parole board member, Emily Latham, responded with, That's the trouble with you newspaper people. You just can't believe prison can reform a person. Louise Pete gained the votes she needed from the board and was granted parole. After 18 years, she walked out of prison on April 11, 1939. But this would not be the last we'd hear of Louise Pressler Anthony Bosley Furrote Pete. Not by a long shot. Next time, you'll hear the second act of her murderous life. That will do it for part one. Part two will be released at the regular time next Monday. But if you're a Patreon supporter, you won't have to wait that long. The second part will be released this week. You will receive an email as soon as it's available. To become a patron, go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another. Mm-hmm.